0: Is it true that if man is five and the devil is six, mm-hmm. then
1: God is seven? Absolutely. It is so. It has been said and it <laughs> is so. It is said. Anything we say is true.
0: Got it. Okay, well, thank you for resolving that for me 30 <laughs> years later. That's been hanging with me for a long time. <laughs>
2: Hello Cleveland. Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for too much effing perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most final tap moments when nothing seems to go right and everything seems to get weird. I'm your host Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas.
0: And I'm your co-host Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, the Vainglorious.
2: Our guest today is Joey Santiago, lead guitarist from one of the most influential
0: bands in rock history, the Pixies. We're going to talk to Joey about what it's like to be ripped off by Kurt Cobain, how to put a guy in the hospital with a guitar solo, and why his least favorite Pixie song to play is one of my favorites and the band's most famous, Monkey Gone to Heaven.
2: So without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show. It really puts perspective on things, so it doesn't. Not really?
1: too much.
0: It's too yeah, much I think,
1: perspective
2: now. Alex, in the year 2000, before GarageBand was a recording app on every Apple computer, it was an international website where bands could upload a tune and people could review it. So I uploaded an old Falling Willendis song called Porcupine off our second album, Belittle, and it received really good reviews. I remember that. In fact, do you remember it went to number one in the
0: world for two straight years? I remember you boasting to me about that.
2: Yes, that's something I would boast about, sure. And wouldn't
0: you? <laughs> no, I, modesty is the best policy, but go on. <laughs> well, some reviewers on
2: GarageBand didn't give me as much credit as I felt I deserved for Porcupine. They said I was heavily influenced by Radiohead song Karma Police. Now, I love Radiohead. I think they're one of the best bands ever. My daughter loves them. But they didn't influence me. Our careers overlapped. We were contemporaries. And truth be told, I went with you to meet Radiohead back in 1995 when they were playing the Metro in Chicago.
0: Yep, you sure did.
2: And I gave Tom York a pre-pressed copy of *Belittle* in the back of his tour bus. Yep. This was the Benz tour before OK Computer before Karma Police was ever recorded. So my question is, who influenced whom?
0: Hmm. Right. I also remember during that show, we were standing there watching Tom sing, and you're like, what planet is this guy from? Well, if
2: I did say that, he, Colin Hay, and I all come from the same planet, Cyclops, because we suffer (laughs) from
0: similar eye afflictions. But that aside, I think what you're implying here, Alan, is that Radiohead was influenced by Falling Willendas? Listen, everybody's influenced by someone. If they're influenced by
2: the Falling Willendas, I'm very proud of that. And <laughs> and would it have hurt Tom York to name me when he listed his influences? I mean, he's given credit to Neil Young, Aphex Twin, R.E.M., Bjork, David Bowie, the Pixies,
0: everyone. But hmm. no mention to me, no mention of the Falling Willendas. Yeah, he probably didn't even say rumdillion, right? You're... Uh... Stage name. Not even Rumdillion was in there. Oh my goodness. Not even Rumdillion. Well, you know what? Let me share a a quick story. When I was first getting to know Tom, he and I went and had lunch and he was sharing with me some of his musical influences, songwriting influences, that kind of thing. And I told him about this band that I had just tour managed the year before called The Chills from New Zealand, has a very talented songwriter named Martin Phillips. And Martin is a huge fan of Randy Newman. And in fact, on the tour that I was on for their album, Soft Bomb, there was a song called Song for Randy Newman. And in that song, Martin says, others made the same mistakes, men like Wilson, Barrett, Walker, Drake, on the journey they were forced to make. People take so much, then leave when you lean. And I quoted that for Tom. And he's like, I love all those guys. So- Another example of him calling out influences, but somehow not mentioning you. So, or when she, the will end us. So I hate to break it to you, but my guess is that that the CD that you handed him in the bus, that probably ended up getting used as a drink coaster or something like that.
2: You know, you say that, but they came out soon after with Kid A. And what's the A stand for? Alan? <laughs> Thanks, Tom, for naming an entire <laughs> album after me. I'm glad I could have helped in some
0: way, Radiohead. Or, or Alex. I guess it never occurred to me. but uh,
1: <laughs> anyway, We have Alan, much
0: more influence than we ever thought. Yeah, yeah. Both of us or none of us. But regardless, it's too much heavy perspective at this point. Let's get to our conversation with one of Tom's actual influences, Joey Santiago from The Pixies. But first, a quick break. Bowie, Dylan, Marley.
2: And now, our conversation with a man who, along with Charles Black Francis Thompson, Kim Deal, and David Lovering, formed a band David Bowie called the Psychotic Beatles, Pixie's guitarist, Joey Santiago.
1: Okay, Joey, I'm hitting record now, and uh, guys, we're set whenever you're ready to go.
2: Gretchen's going to be like God here. She's going to disappear, but she's going to be overseeing our conversation from the cloud.
0: That's what Churchill said about his father. My father like God, was busy elsewhere.
2: (laughs) We're going to be talking a lot about the Yalta conference today, Joe, just so so you're prepared. (laughs) Right,
0: and and the Gallipoli campaign.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Joe, I want to start out by saying how we met, because I think that's kind of a weird, funny Spinal Tap moment. Do you remember at all? Well, we met at um, our
1: kids' elementary school.
2: Right, and I knew you as Joe, and we talked every day, And then one day, the girls wanted to get together, and so we went bowling. Mm -hmm. And you came a little late, and you said, yeah, I was in the studio recording. And I said, oh, yeah, you're a musician? He goes, yeah, I'm a guitar player. I go, what band? The Pixies. And I went, oh, you're Joey Santiago. I had no idea, because I knew he was Joe Santiago. (laughs) It was such a far leap from there to there. But I remember that was so funny, because we knew each other for months, and I had no idea that you were in the Pixies, as you didn't know
1: that I was in the Beatles. I did not know I was recording at that time. <laughs>
0: yeah. I just say, I, I I love that story. I've watched a couple of the documentaries. I hear your your bandmates call you Joe, as naturally they would when you're just living life together. How do you think about the nature of personas in a band? Is Joey the guy that gets up on stage and is the the public version of Joe?
1: Yeah, th- that is like almost like it. There's a backstory to it, too. There used to be this... This kid uh, named Joey used to pick on me, and so I I stopped calling myself his fucking name. I I guess I got my name back from this band, kind of like a fuck you.
0: That is a great story.
2: I guess I got to call myself Greg Angeli then, because he was my nemesis.
0: Yeah, and I got to call myself (laughs) Dave Van Vandries.
2: Kind of makes you wonder why more musicians aren't named after their dads. (laughs) some people label you guys as punk but punks are such fashion victims and you guys no offense seem like you could care less what you wear on stage especially charles in fact i read you were once kicked out of a punk club joey for not conforming to their dress code is that true
1: Yes, yeah, um I was. I was. Uh, and I looked at the sign and it had so many rules for a, a, a damn punk club. And one of them was um, uh, no eyesod. No no, I mean no alligator. That's what it said. No alligator. I was like, "What?" I, I think they missed the whole ethos of punk there, didn't they? I mean, the whole punks have um you know, they have an outfit Like, they all look the same, you know? So what is really the point? It's almost like a uniform. There's
0: a really cool picture, at least I thought it was cool, of Roger Daltrey, lead singer for The Who, probably from 77, 78, dressing like a punk. He had a wig on that had sort of spiky hair. He had something that looked like a safety pin through his nostril with a chain that then went to his ear as you were saying Joe it's like it was the punk uniform as it had kind of already become stereotyped in the late 70s kind of based on the the sex pistols look or something like that
1: yeah and um, I think Malcolm McLaren yeah even had a concept of an outfit for them he had the clothing store yeah exactly and he actually got the look from Richard Hell and the Voidoids mm-hmm. in New York You know, speaking of outfits, uh, when we played at David Letterman, his comment was I got one word for that band outfits. (laughs) Maybe
2: Letterman was actually Malcolm McLaren in a brown sport coat. Um, Joe, so you were telling me that your favorite moment in Spinal Tap is the Boston line. Uh, Boston's not a college town. Really <laughs> that was it. You nailed it. I just came back from Boston. And I never knew there were as many colleges in Boston as there are firework stands in Texas. I mean...
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, on my walk home from work, I would probably pass about uh, maybe 30 million. <laughs> Give or take. (laughs) Five
0: colleges per capita or something like that. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, there's colleges within colleges there, which is uh, kind of frustrating. So you grew up outside of Boston, but you and Charles met at Amherst, right?
1: Yeah, we were sweet mates in UMass.
2: I visited Amherst the year that you were there, I think, 1983. And I started a food fight with dried rice noodles and I heard like three f- years later, they were still finding rice noodles in the nooks and crannies of <laughs> where that battle took
0: place. So did you ever find a rice noodle? Because that
2: was mine. Mm-mm.
0: No, I have not. Right. You were just reenacting Animal House, Alan? Was that your... Was that your you
2: were just, this was a punk one. In, in Animal House, all the food is cooked. This was actually hard ass dried <laughs> rice noodles. This could cause damage. So did you find that Charles and you were kindred spirits? Is that why you
1: guys started a band together? Absolutely. You know what? When, when I went back to where I lived, my brother owns the house now. We went through my trunk and I found the letters that Charles was writing me from Puerto Rico all about starting a band. We went to college with an idea to uh, start a band. He did and I did. So it was just meant to be. And we picked Boston because... Uh, close by
0: when you shared the story about you guys being like sweet I was jealously thinking about I wanted that exact same thing going to college I wanted to
1: find that partner like you found in in Charles yeah I mean I did I wanted someone like that someone that uh wasn't interested in starting a cover band or anything you know I was interested in making music something very 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 different. So,
0: and why was Charles in in uh, Puerto Rico? Was he doing like an
1: exchange program? Yes, exactly. That's what he was doing. You know, he just wanted to go there. Got sick of the scene. So, yeah. He came back and um I withdrew, which is not the same thing as dropping out, but it was it's kind of <laughs> the same. your parents. It's like <laughs> hang on to my credits. Yeah. I will be back. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking
2: of Boston, okay, so he says that line about Boston not being a college town. Mm-hmm. And that's Ian Faith, the manager of Spinal Tap, putting lipstick on a pig, right? They go from ten thousand seat arenas to thousand person clubs. Uh he says, Well, our appeal is just getting more selective. <laughs> <laughs> Contrast that with the Pixies two thousand four reunion tour. You came back and you were <laughs> more popular than ever. What do you attribute that to?
1: Well, I think people recognize that we were uh, influential, you know, and uh, a lot of bands had said it during uh, our breakup. So that's probably the the reason that people uh, were waiting for us. They're like, who's this band that inspired all my favorite bands, you know? So I guess I am kind of proud that we are one of those people that influence bands a lot of alternative bands cite the velvet underground as uh, their influence so that's great so we're one of those bands that have a signature sound that they could just refer to i could imagine them going to a studio and do something uh, keith moonish do something whoish we're probably one of those bands do something pixie-ish Let's rip off the Pixies. (laughs) Well, that's exactly what Kurt Cobain
2: said he was trying to do when he wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit. In an interview, he said, and I quote, I was basically trying to rip off the Pixies. I have to admit it. We use their sense of dynamics, being soft and quiet and then loud and hard. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is said by Radiohead's guitarist, Johnny Greenwood. He said they had to become a keyboard band because they ran out of Pixies songs to rip off. And even Bowie was a big fan of yours. He covered your song, Cactus,
0: from Surfer Rosa on his album, Heathens. Speaking of Radiohead, when I was working with them, Johnny had been playing guitar for maybe two years. Wow, really? And yeah, yeah, he was a keyboard player okay. originally. So he just, he, he just approached the guitar in a different way because he had started on a different instrument and he saw and heard the guitar differently. As I've been listening back to Pixie's music and your guitar pieces in particular, I was thinking... Very similarly, like the stuff you were coming up with was really like unpredictable, unorthodox. So I was curious about that. You know, how how
1: would you characterize the way you approach guitar? I try to play things as simple as possible. Other guitar players would probably think, why didn't I think of that? You know, you know, I want to be different and I like hanging on to a note as long as possible because that that won't get in the way of the vocals and it'll be different enough if you want to like hear the guitar and just wonder what the hell he's doing. That's the whole point. I think Johnny Greenwood would agree with that. The
0: Radiohead lore is that in Creep, where there's that, that thing they call the Chucker, right? Where they just give you know, yep. it the story was that Johnny didn't like the song. He kind of thought it was too ballady or something like that. So in the studio
1: he threw that in there just to mess it up. And it worked. It's good to have those uh moments in music where it's only your secret, you know? It's like why did I do that? It's because of this. I did it on one song. Not too long ago, actually, I forgot the name of the song. I'll get it later. But um, I did a English siren, ah, ambulance or a police, because this one punk pissed me off at a bar the night before, and I wanted to do something to him, you know, because he touched me, he shoved me with his shoulder, so. I was pissed, and I was drunk, and I wanted to do something to him. But I did not. I held off, and the next morning, they asked me, what do you want to do? I'll do this. And I did a little sound that emulated an ambulance. It was my fantasy that I curbed him, and he got taken away. (laughs) <laughs> I know that sounds very, very violent, but at least I, I I did it through music, and I didn't do it through real life. I love that story, Joey, and and you said that's recently. Yeah, it was on the Head Carrier album. Let me see, let me find it. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. While you're thinking of it, I just think that that just shows
0: incredible. Uh, I mean, maybe a weird word to say, but just maturity, right?
1: Um, chugalaga. Okay. That's the name of the song. and uh, Yeah. So. Well, honestly, that seems like a good way to
0: have it happen, right? A lot of other things could have gone wrong with unfortunate consequences. (laughs) Yeah. The other guitar thing I was going to say was my very first job out of college. So I went to University of Wisconsin. Alan, and I both went to University of Wisconsin. And one of the bands that kind of loomed large from the upper Midwest when we were kids was Cheap Trick. And Rick Nielsen, I always, I still love... That live version of uh, I Want You to Want Me from from Budokan. That that is the best version. For sure. And just the way he plays, Mm -hmm. right? He's not playing strummy guitar and he's not filling every space. He's just doing tasty things that bounce along on top of Tom Peterson's bass line. And Bunny Carlos is just like so in the pocket with the drums and all that kind of stuff. You and Rick are very different guitar players, but similar sensibilities, I think.
1: Like Surrender, The Break. You know, it's two chords. Bam, 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 bam. You know, it's between the verses of chords. It's just a little tag, and it's uh, two damn chords. It's so cool. I think the Pixies and Cheap Trick
2: have a lot in common. Even though you're both firmly within the pop construct, and neither of you are doing anything revolutionary like, say, Beefheart or The Residence, you both have your own signature sound. Everyone knows a Pixie song and everyone knows a Cheap Trick song. No one sounds like
1: either of you. A big part of it is Charles's chord progressions. It has a lot of half steps and all this stuff that uh, drive me crazy. <laughs> I mean, I like the sound of it, but when I hear it, it's like, oh man, what what am I going to do here? <laughs> and um, yeah, and was, sometimes we have um, pop chords in there. And catchy. Remember I dissed you for toe in the ocean because I'm like, what are you guys
2: doing? This is going to be a hit. (laughs) It's so so catchy. And you apologized. (laughs) (laughs) I watched Loud, Quiet, Loud, I think a 2004 documentary Mm -hmm. on the Pixies reunion tour. And to be honest, it didn't seem like it was that much fun to be in in the Pixies. Of course, you've got four people with different personalities thrust together 24-7 for months at a time. It's a recipe for disaster. And I think I read that Charles said, if we
1: had only taken a break, we probably never would have broken up. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a truism at its finest. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds like if we didn't break up, we wouldn't have broken up. Yeah,
2: <laughs> sure. And if he had of broken up the band in a newspaper article without telling you, you guys wouldn't have broken up, right?
1: Right, exactly. But I know what he meant. It's because we were releasing an album once a year, and we never took a break. And uh, in fact, for Trump Lamont... I needed some time for myself, you know, having toured a lot. I mean, I love touring, but I just was like, why are we doing this? Why do we have to do it once a year? There's no reason to do this. And that documentary, I think that that basically sums up a lot of bands, I would think, you know, if you're a band like us. I mean, there are other bands that just go nutty.
2: I was thinking that the general public can
1: commiserate
2: more with how it is to be in a band because they were stuck with their families in COVID (laughs) quarantine for like a whole year. But you also, in that documentary, you come off as the Derek Smalls of the group. You're the lukewarm water between Kim Deal and Charles. You were kind of like trying to keep everything together when it was obviously very challenging.
1: It was just by default. That's it. David really keeps himself, really keeps himself. And I guess I make myself a little more available. That's about it, which is by default that I uh, did that.
2: Maybe David's not actually that quiet. He just makes all your memories disappear because he's a magician. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> that could be it. You know, I was thinking about that. I watch Loud, Quiet, Loud as well. But I also found a documentary on YouTube from the late 80s. I think it was one of your European tours that were kind of like a bunch of home movies shot by your longtime lighting director, Miles Mangino. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting that in that film, there were many scenes of you looking very happy, you know, laughing, mm-hmm. joking around, things like that. And then in Loud, Quiet, Loud, there was more tension. You know, They showed you you were doing a film scoring project in-between moments, it struck me as, like, the, the 2004 tour from a distance, right, would seem such like a triumphant affirmation of your art and that you guys had really done something unique,
1: yet you were all kind of suffering in a way. I mean, I don't know if the cameras had anything to do with it, probably, but that's just the way we are. There was, um, I guess there was a bit of tension, underlying tension maybe that we weren't aware of that the camera captured and I took on that film not to get away from people it's just I didn't want to get in that much trouble meaning I didn't want to party too much you know because I was already doing that and I thought like I need a project or else something terrible is going to happen to me (laughs) (laughs) that's really smart Yeah. Yeah.
2: Good survival instinct sure can come in handy. Like you were telling me that there were times when the four of you would just go your separate ways after shows. But you weren't always successful, right? Like that time you were in the hotel bar.
1: Well, you know, I think we were in Belfast and I wanted to just be by myself, go to a bar and chill out, you know, find a dive bar. And I thought I saw Kim just getting out the elevator. So I just booked. (laughs) Into like an alley and then I I found this uh, bar and then I sat down had a drink and then she walks in (laughs) and it's fine, you know, I mean, I love Kim and she went to the bathroom, came back and just slapped me in the face. Yeah, that's, that's what happened. And then, and then just like the movies, pretty corny, the, um, Bartender, poured me a shot. <laughs>
2: Set him up, Joe. I think
1: I got a story you should know. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, obviously, there are times that you guys
1: don't get along, but it can't be like that all the time. Well, you know, it's not all the time. I I guess I should clarify that. Right now, we do get along. Right now, at this moment, we do get along. Of course, Paz, your new bassist, has been a good influence, right? Paz uh, means Peace. And right. she brought that along with her. Um, there are times when we, we will all go out to dinner together as a band. You know, when we entering the lobby from the bus, Charles would go, what are you doing for dinner? And we would go out. You know, Paz would go, well, you know, let's get coffee tomorrow. We would do that. We don't necessarily do it often, but we have different interests when we go to the city. Paz likes to go to museums and stuff. I like to go on occasion, and a lot of times Paz and Charles would go together. Sometimes I would go later because I sleep later. I like to go to a park and take a nap.
0: <laughs> God
1: forbid s- Someone finds me is like you know it's like oh you're a vagrant you, you you don't have money you're like no not on me not 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 your currency. <laughs>
0: There is a special camaraderie on the road. Yeah. And I found a joy of being in the tour bus after the show and just rolling down the dark highways. And um,
1: I mean, the, you the, know, did, uh, did Radiohead hang out
0: together a lot often? They did. They, oh, they did. did. And kind of by necessity. I mean, and again, I was with them on Pablo Honey, so it was still relatively early days, mm-hmm. right? But we all did spend a lot of time together. We did go out to meals in, in small groups. I mean, Johnny used to like to go off and do his own... Mm -hmm. thing and on different adventures and, you know, going to, going to music shops, you know, vinyl shops and things like that was Mm -hmm. a big thing for him. But yeah, they, they enjoyed each other's company quite a bit. Ed and Colin and Jim Warren, the sound man who's still with them. They played bridge. They played a lot of bridge on the bus. Yeah. There was a lot
1: of good times just hanging around as friends. I think we are all just all introverts. In that way, and it makes for more interesting conversation when we uh get together, like what did you do today? you know I mean, maybe my side won't be that interesting. you know, I took a nap outside <laughs> 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 I slept in this awesome park today. you wouldn't believe it, yeah. <laughs>
2: We've talked with some of our guests about the relationship between creative tension and quality of music and edgy, turbulent, explosive stuff. And obviously, the, the Pixies are an example of that. You think that if you guys all got along perfectly, that your music
1: would be as good? <sighs> that was the only way we knew how to do it. I mean, But during Surferosa Rosa and Doolittle, we were getting along really great. It wasn't until the last two albums. And it happens to be so that those are probably the less revered ones. So there might not be any truth to the tension thing. But I did see Monster. Oh, the uh, uh, Metallica. Metallica, Metallica thing. Yeah, some kind yeah. of monster, right? Or yeah, some like that, kind yeah. of monster. And it just goes to show that, you know, a band doesn't have to hate each other to make good music. Yeah. What version of reality would come out in a modern Pixie's Dock? Today? Yeah, today. A little more joyful. But the backstage is just about the same as Loud Quiet Loud, you know? It's because we go to the show about an hour before we go on. So we're already in that mindset of getting into the zone, as they call it. We don't talk that much to each other just because we are getting ready. You know, we have something to do in an hour. You know, there's not much time for us to uh, say, hey, how's it going? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I walk in and D- David's already um, doing his uh, paradiddles, the warm Paradiddles and all that stuff. And Charles and uh, Paz would be doing their vocal warm up. And I would, you know, I'd have a guitar and maybe go over one or two songs that tricked me out at times, you know. (laughs) So,
0: yeah. Do you feel any nerves before you go on stage? Any butterflies? Things like that? Yeah, I do.
1: I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, someone that we know in common, Joey, from years ago is Tanya Donnelly. Oh, yeah. When I was with Radiohead on the the second U.S. tour, Radiohead was doing a co-headline with her band Belly. You know, she used to throw up before certain shows because she would get so nervous Uh and i was really surprised because she had a lot of performances under her belt at that point yet it had an an impact on her ahead of show so i always thought that was interesting
1: yeah yeah i mean i've thrown up before a show huh uh you know nerves it happens it's not normal but it happens Alex just brought up Tanya Donnelly, who along with Kristen Hirsch
2: made up the great band Throwing Muses. And I know you guys opened for them on your first tour, but by the end of the tour, they were opening for you, which obviously isn't the ideal way for things to happen. I'm just wondering how they took that.
1: I would imagine they didn't feel too great about it, you know, because I didn't. I thought, uh, this shouldn't be happening at all, but it happened.
2: And to is a great band, too. I mean, that's Kirsten Hirsch is not a slouch. She's fantastic.
1: Exactly, yeah.
2: That must have been a good tour, though.
1: That was a great tour, yeah. Yeah, I love uh, all of them. But really,
2: that's a great pairing. That's a band that's, if I had to categorize it, they're really in your ballpark. They're very quirky. They are unpredictable. That would have been a fantastic show to see.
1: Yeah, both 4AD bands too, and right. we were kind of like, like-minded. Outside.
2: So another Spinal Tap scene that almost every band has experienced is getting lost backstage in Cleveland. I read that you guys had a similar experience at NPR on your way to the Tiny Desk Concert. And I'm wondering, did you actually get lost in the parking garage, as they say, or were you just trying to
0: avoid Terry Gross? (laughs) (laughs) Terry Gross, by the way, is not. She works out of WHYY in Philadelphia, not the NPR office. So I'm just going to fact check you there, Alan, but uh, my apologies.
1: It's not as funny when you do that, Alex.
0: I know, I know. I'll try not to do that again. Sorry.
1: There are times when uh, we do get lost, you know, but not to that extent where we're um, underneath the tunnel of the venue. So you were really lost in the garage? We couldn't find the dock that we were supposed to go into. Well, I'm
2: going to develop an app specifically for musicians that is like Waze, except it, it, it only goes 50, <laughs> 50 feet. <laughs> it helps them go 50 feet in the right
0: direction. Yeah, every tour manager needs that, Alan. I think you're onto something.
2: (laughs) You guys are obviously loud, quiet, loud. You're known for dynamics. Do you think that being so dynamic makes you hard to dance (laughs) to?
1: What's that again? Um, You know, when the bass and drums are just pumping along, it's it's great, you know? Those are the first two things that get recorded. We listen to it, and it's like, wow, this this is groovy, man. And then we mess it up with guitars, the groove. I think Charles wanted to do it, but listen, we're not the first ones to uh, do the loud, loud, quiet, loud moment, you know? Um, I mean, Tchaikovsky did it with cannons, you know what I mean? So.
2: But the band Chicago never did it. That's all I got to (laughs) say.
1: Oh, no, Uh, they didn't. There are a lot of bands out there that never really did it. It's just like one I think it's hard
2: if you have a brass section. It's hard to do. It's hard to do loud, quiet, loud with horns. Yeah on monkey gone to heaven black francis says rock me joe Mm -hmm. now i've found that in rock and roll when one guy calls out the other band member and it seems complimentary it's actually passive-aggressive like in Glass Onion, John Lennon says the walrus was Paul. Mm-hmm. He didn't really mean that. So do you think Charles was giving you a pat on the back there or a kick in the ass?
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you got me paranoid. <laughs> you know. Yeah.
2: Going back to John Lennon saying that Paul was the walrus. I looked it up and the life expectancy of a walrus is 40 years. And John lived to be 40. So he must have been the walrus after all. Oh, wow. So he's the walrus.
1: N- yeah, no coincidence there. No coincidence Wow, there. You know, that's my least favorite song to play. It's Monkey. Really? Why? Because you have to play played so much or? I don't it's know. Just... I just, I'm not fond
2: of it to play. What are your favorite songs to play that you never get sick of? Oh, boy. Planet of Sound?
1: The rest, really, <laughs> the, rest. the rest, the rest of them, Yeah.
0: Let me tell a story here. So, the '92, I saw you guys at a medium-sized room at the President's Room in Milwaukee, probably holds eight hundred, a thousand people. Mm-hmm. And then later that year, saw you open for U2 at the Rosemont Horizon near Chicago, and. Prior, in the fall of 1991, I did my first ever tour as a tour manager with a band called the Bodine's that you may remember out of of Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And we were on the bus one night, you know, pulled into whatever the next town was at at 2 a.m. And a bunch of guys were sleeping on the bus and and a few others of us were going to go into the hotel and somebody put Monkey on the stereo in the front lounge and cranked it up. And that was the first time I'd heard it. And it played through, and then someone hit repeat, and it played again, and then someone hit repeat, and it played again. So it played loudly five or six times in a row, and a bunch of us were dancing in the front lounge, and it became the theme song of that tour, really. <laughs> oh, really? And, um, and there were some pissed off guys in the morning because they were get- woken up hearing it, but uh, <laughs> we had a blast. So anyway, I guess my question for you is, is it true that if Man is Five and the devil is six,
1: then God is seven. Absolutely. It is so. It has been said, and (laughs) it is so. It is said. Anything we say is
0: true. Got it. Okay, well, thank you for resolving that (laughs) for me 30 years later. That's been hanging with me for a
1: long time.
2: Does that include, I was looking handsome, she was looking like an erotic vulture? That'd
1: be true, right? (laughs) Oh, it's true. It's true.
2: I have another burning question for you, Joey. How come the Pixies got Surfer Rosa into the stores with a picture of a nude woman on the cover, but Spinal Tap couldn't get them to distribute Smell the Glove? Is that just an example of you guys being on the right side of clever and stupid?
1: (laughs) Well, aesthetically, it looked beautiful, you know. I mean, when we saw it, we knew it was kind of taboo, you know. But at the same time, screw it. It's just a piece of art. And it, it looked cool.
0: Was there any blowback? Do you remember any retailers that wouldn't take it or was there any trouble around
1: that cover? No, they would put this, a sticker over the breast. Oh,
2: that's really, that's, it was just like accidentally they put a sticker and it just so happened to be covering yeah. the breasts.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, it's like you guys in Two Live Crew, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so one of my favorite movies ever is Fight Club. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about having, uh, where's my mind? as the last scene in that amazing movie? You know, I
1: um, I had a problem with Pixies when that came out. Like some kind of mental thing, uh, getting pissed off. You know, something that happened financially with the entity. And when I heard that song, Fight Club, doing a, a trailer before a movie, I left. Oh, you didn't know about it? No, no i I didn't know about it but I did just leave the theater yeah but I saw it later and it is a great drop one of the great uh music drops out there I'm not just saying that because I'm in the damn band but um you know it's just because the acoustic guitar got introduced and the whole score was done by the Dust Brothers. So there's a lot of, like, electronic going on. And then an acoustic goes on. One of the most, uh, let's just say, violent. Uh, It wasn't the most violent, but, you know, buildings were falling down. So Pretty violent. Yeah. I mean, the whole movie's violent.
2: But a perfect loud, quiet moment cinematically, too, right? Yeah.
0: I want to ask one more question, Joey. When you think of the movie This Is Spinal Tap, is there one universal truth from that
1: film that, stands out for you Hmm, a universal truth i don't like it when people go to my place or uh backstage and just pick up a guitar they could look at it but just to pick it up and start playing it without asking me that's just wrong in every possible fucking way (laughs) you know it's like wow you didn't ask (laughs) You didn't ask. Wow, wow. Oh, is that your girlfriend? You mind if I, uh, you know, let me just... Um... Is she vaccinated? Yeah, don't ask don't, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't turn it, Joey. Say what you mean here.
2: Well, obviously it <laughs> happened before. Can you tell us yeah. the incident that that happened?
1: Well, you know, it happened backstage. It happened when someone came over uh, my place. I just don't want to give any specifics here, but... Got it. It has happened. And I was surprised on... How I reacted to it. It shouldn't be a big deal, but it is. My boundaries were getting really disrespected. So I felt violated. I felt violated. That's, yeah, that is super. You've clearly felt something
0: visceral. That's what you're describing to mm-hmm. us. Did you say anything to the person or? No, I did not. And did it manifest in a british style siren the next day or how did it uh, <laughs> right how did it
1: come to fruition i talked about it later it's like what the <laughs> hell what the hell was he doing god damn it <laughs> fuck god you know yeah do you collect
2: guitars uh, that are from 1965 because that's your birth year
1: yeah i have two i have a rickenbacker 12 string that's a 65 and i got my red guitar es 345
2: that's a great guitar yeah <laughs> Okay, Joey, do you have anything you want to promote? Your music, um, your artwork,
1: your dance career, anything? <laughs> no, nothing, nothing. Social media channel? Oh, yeah, social media. Um, let's have people follow me on Instagram. And are you Joey Santiago on Instagram? I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, Joey Red Guitar. It's uh, Joey, don't touch it's my guitar. Um, <laughs> yeah, there
0: you go. <laughs> Joey, don't even think about it.
1: (laughs) Oh, Joey Alberto Santiago. Wow. Wow. I'm really making it. it hard for people, aren't I?
2: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was so good to touch base with you again and reconnect. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about how Kurt Cobain was so open about his intent to, quote, unquote, rip off the Pixies. And it reminds me of Picasso's famous quote, good artists borrow, great artists steal. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there's no plagiarism of the Pixies and Nirvana's work, but Kobe just wanted to give credit and acknowledgement to a band that he loved and played some part in his musical journey. Pre-David Bowie, David Jones, his work is really kind of odd. It's kind of a mishmash of influences there's The Who, and there's Anthony Newley, and there's Scott Walker. And, you know, I think he was really searching for his identity. And then he comes up with Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And The Who is still in there. The Walker brothers are still in there. Mark Bolin is definitely in there. But it's all through the lens of David Bowie, this new creation, a stew of influences that takes all the people that he listened to into another world. And then what I think is really fascinating about Bowie too, and what I think is indicative of other great artists like Picasso, is that they start becoming their own influence. Bowie goes from being Ziggy Stardust to the Thin White Duke. And you can see it in the album Diamond Dogs, which is kind of like this bridge in between these two eras. And so Bowie during Young Americans and Station to Station is really just another incarnation of the Ziggy Stardust Bowie. What I'm saying is that when you're influenced by artists, make sure that you filter them as opposed to they filter you.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I also think there's a there's kind of an organic process there from the beginnings of pop music to today, right? Whether it's the Stones being influenced by Muddy Waters or uh, hip-hop artists being influenced by jazz, blues, pop, and sampling those things, bringing them literally into their music, but remaking it, you know, those influences are really important and pervasive. And at the same time, those things that you could say are stolen are also shaping what these artists become on their own.
2: You know, I have a friend and I remember he came out with this really amazing demo tape in high school. It was just It was like, wow, where did you come up with this? And it was great. He got a lot of recognition for it. Shooter had a couple years and he gets signed to a major label and he records an album and he starts playing it to me and he goes, this is my Peter Gabriel song and this is my Smithereen song. And I was like, oh no. I mean, he had somehow lost his own artistic vision and let his influences take over. And it was obvious that the stuff that he was doing was derivative and nothing like what I knew he could create on his own.
0: Well, the thing is also, you know, to be fair, we've heard in other conversations, even on this show, that it's not up to only the artist, right? There's management, there's the record company putting pressure. You know, he may have heard from his label, hey, you need that Peter Gabriel song. Right. You know, you need your version of the Smithereens' Wall of Sleep or something like that. And so, especially young artists get buffeted. I remember when, you know, after Creep was such a big hit for Radiohead and they put out a couple other singles, Anyone Can Play Guitar, and that didn't get quite as much attention. And then The Benz came out. And they had Fake Plastic Trees, right, as the first single. And I remember someone from the record company at that point telling me about hearing Fake Plastic Trees for the first time and saying that they had said to the band, wow, you must really think we're good at our job. Or something like along those lines saying, this is going to be really hard, right? This is going to be very hard to get this song played on the radio. So it's a tricky thing. Artists get pushed in a bunch of different directions. And they're influenced by even non-musical influences.
2: I really think the difference between an artist and someone just doing this to make money or be successful is their willingness to cave to those external forces. I know after the Beastie Boys had their hit, You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party, the label really pushed them to do more of the same, and they fought back. I think they may have even stepped away from their deal and ended up recording Paul's Boutique on their own, which was a commercial bomb, but was indicative of the breakthrough work they'd become known for. To me, that's the right approach. Your artistic vision is what makes you unique. It's the only reason why you're doing this in the first place, really. Otherwise, you might as well just be in a cover band. Mm-hmm. And if you're a new band who loves the Pixies, remember, you're not the Pixies. And you never will be. Just be yourself. And trust me, all the time you spent listening to Doolittle, junior year, and junior college, well, that's going to come out in your work, whether you like it or not. But make sure it's your work, not theirs. I'll get off my soapbox
0: now. Yeah. That's in music, that's in other aspects of your life, right? You, people influence you. There's good influences, there's bad influences, and you're ultimately a stew of those influences, but you emerge as the person you are. I've got just three words for you Rock me, Joe. Al and I want to thank Joey Santiago for sharing his stories and his happy perspective with us and with you our listeners. Thanks to Spinal Tap for influencing musicians for nearly 40 years on what not to do when you have a band. To sign up for that Crash Course, watch the film This is Spinal Tap on Apple Movies, Amazon Prime, and elsewhere. And find those legendary songs on your favorite streaming service. Since we now know for certain that God is seven, this week we're recommending the song rock and roll creation for the album The Gospel According to Spinal Tap. This episode was edited by Gretchen Kilby music by J.K. Harrison. Please follow, rate, and review Too Much Effing Perspective on Apple Podcasts and find more episodes with performers telling stories of their unforgettable Spinal Tap moments wherever you listen. We're on Instagram at TMEPShow and our website is TMEPShow.com
2: Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. This is Alan Keller, and on behalf of Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening we're going to leave you with the following little song I mentioned in the opening called Porcupine. You can hear it and all our stuff on iTunes and Spotify. So see you next time on too much effing perspective. Just look at-
0: This is the story of Kurt Cobain.
2: Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear.
0: Evergreen Podcast Network.